0: Welcome to Soil to Soil, a podcast connecting the dots in the life cycle of clothing and material culture brought to you by Fibershed. Each episode offers a look at how and why our community is working to cultivate fiber and dye systems that build soil and protect the health of our biosphere. In this episode, we're looking at manufacturing systems and learning about some of the missing links and key opportunities that would help make locally grown clothing more accessible in the Western United States. I'm Jess Daniels, and today I'm talking with Adrian Rodriguez and Nicholas Wenner about the Regional Fiber Manufacturing Initiative. The Regional Fiber Manufacturing Initiative is developing a manufacturing system to regionalize the production of textiles, support locally grown economies, and contribute to climate solutions. We call it the RFMI for short, and it's an effort organized by FiberShed and led by a stewardship committee, which Nick and Adrian are part of. Adrian Rodriguez is co-chair for the Stewardship Committee. He is a co-founder and managing director of Provenance Capital Group, where he helps develop blended capital structures that catalyze resilient biological systems and businesses. Before Provenance, Adrian co-founded the boutique consulting firm Haife Partners, where he helped companies finance and build regenerative business models. He also lectured on food innovation at the University of California, Berkeley Haas School of Business and designed and taught an entrepreneurship intensive for farmers at the Stone Barnes Center for Food and Agriculture. Adrian is a graduate of Berkeley Haas's full time MBA program. At Haas, Adrian was a portfolio manager of the Haas Socially Responsible Investment Fund and a member of the Center for Responsible Businesses Student Advisory Board. He received a BA in English from Williams College and he studied English literature at Exeter College, Oxford University, and he holds the Chartered Financial Analyst designation. He's an avid chef, backyard farmer, and budding yogi. Nicholas Wenner is also the co-chair of the Stewardship Committee, and he works as an engineer to design regenerative materials and manufacturing systems. He earned a BS in earth systems and an MS in mechanical engineering with a focus on manufacturing from Stanford University, where he taught design and manufacturing through the Product Realization Lab. Nicholas recently led R&D and process engineering for MycoWorks to create a leather-inspired material from fungi, authoring seven patents. Other experiences include crafting natural animal leathers in the mountains of eastern Washington, designing a botanical indigo dye production system with Fibershed's True Blue project, and developing modern products with 3D modeling and CNC machining He aims to bridge the wisdom of the past with the possibilities of today to foster mutually supportive relationships between modern humans and the world that sustains us in this interview we're reflecting on just one piece of the puzzle that nick adrian and the rfmi contributors have been working on in the last 12 to 18 months from mapping current resources to scoping out what's needed to catalyze a regenerative west coast fiber system we know that there is so much need for transformation in the fashion and textile industry And we see hundreds of millions of investment dollars going to material development startups, for instance. But what we have learned is that we're not even making use of the material we already have. We'll hear more about how much natural fiber is being produced, how value chains can support fiber production that restores ecosystem health and climate stability, and all about the process and strategy for building that manufacturing system here in the Western US, or how you could begin scoping out this type of work in your home community. Let's start with a little background on the Regional Fiber Manufacturing Initiative. FiberShed has been exploring milling systems for several years now, from the wool mill vision that was developed and published in 2014, to uh, providing some support and, and really organizing around three different milling businesses that have emerged on the scene since then. Yet we know there are still a lot of gaps in milling and manufacturing. And one way we can see that is just through how relatively rare it is to produce a 100% regionally grown and made item, uh, or how kind of bespoke and you know, small scale those production lines are. So where and how does the Regional Fiber Manufacturing Initiative pick up with this and what are the goals?
1: Thanks so much, Jess, and really appreciate being here and having this conversation about the Regional Fiber Manufacturing Initiative. When we think about our efforts as a team for the RFMI we're really standing on a legacy of great work that Fibershed has done before and you alluded to the wool mill vision and that was a great effort led by Fibershed that showed that to build a north star vertically integrated wool mill it would cost about 20 to 25 million dollars and while it was ideally one of the best mill designs we've ever seen, going from zero to 25 million was not really feasible at that moment. And so after coming together as a group, we realized that there were really good pieces of infrastructure existing in the wool supply ecosystem despite the fragmentation and the gaps. So instead of trying to redesign a perfect wool mill from scratch we then had the thought of saying why don't we map out what exists and while things like NAFTA globalization have led to a lot of gappiness, it doesn't mean that we're starting completely from scratch so we understood that we had pieces to work with and how much would it actually cost just to fix in the gaps to actually allow for a hundred percent regionally grown piece of fabric so the R for my the genesis of it was how do we take the lessons from the wool mill vision realize that instead of creating something from scratch that live in isolation we actually should understand the ecosystem of entrepreneurs of businesses that already exist realize that there are gaps that prevent them from working together especially in a regional context But if we were to fill in those gaps, that regional supply could actually start flowing through. So it was discussions like that that really seeded the conversation for the regional fiber manufacturing initiative. And through those conversations, we touched on several other elements that we felt were needed, that we heard from our thought stakeholders that we should also invest time into. And those are ecosystem mapping and prioritization. It's one thing to know all the gaps, but how do you actually figure out what gaps to fill in first? To fill in gaps, we needed to help entrepreneurs raise capital to do so. But to do that, we needed an active investment community that was interested in investing in this space. And as we started working with entrepreneurs, many were exceptional, but no entrepreneur is fully ready and always needs guidance. So, how do we? come up with the safeguards, the advisors, the incubator, the ecosystem support that would increase their level of success. We also had to think about how do we keep drawing in top talent into this space and finding a way to connect people who have a vision, who have skills to the opportunities. So that was really how the regional fiber manufacturing initiative came about and how the conversation expanded from just landing infrastructure to being more comprehensive.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, it is so comprehensive and I know a little bit about the structure and how much it is embracing that complexity and kind of holistic vision. And backing up a little bit, Adrian, I'd love to hear more about how you got involved in the RFMI and if you could share a little bit more about your background and your experience in the world of business development.
1: Absolutely. It's kind of funny how me and my business partner, Francois-Jerome Salos, became involved in the Regional Fiber Manufacturing Initiative. And it all really started with the conversation that FJ was having with a gentleman named John Wick in the corner of a room during a conference. And FJ was talking to him about trying to live in coherence and really trying to figure out how do we make sure we're living our values in the clothing that we wear. And John, being a great listener, just described himself as a rancher and stood there for about 30 minutes talking talking to FJ about his want of figuring out how he could actually wear his values and how hard and challenging it was. And after that 30 minutes, John smiled at FJ and said, I need you to meet someone, meet me at my ranch on this day, and you're gonna meet someone named Rebecca Burgess. And FJ was kind enough to invite me to that lunch. And at that moment, Rebecca was really thinking about how to take a lot of these amazing ideas that were incubated in Fibershed, the nonprofit, and to really have them percolate into the for-profit space. We often talk about how nonprofits are a great place to incubate ideas, to garner supporters behind those ideas. But ultimately, to change things at scale, especially in America, you have to involve business. So we were having that conversation at lunch, and that spurred into a a deep collaboration, multi-year collaboration, where we've been supporting Rebecca in thinking about how do we take these ideas at Fibershed and operationalize them in the business world. In terms of my own background... Um, I immigrated to America when I was young, spent the early part of my career getting financial security, and I did what most kids did who went to Williams College, which was going to finance. As I became more financially secure, I started asking questions about how businesses were set up and started realizing how deeply hurtful they were to people across the supply chain, as well as the environment and the world's natural resources. That led me to Berkeley Haas, Uh, business school where I explored how to get long time horizon investors to invest in sustainable agriculture. And to me, agriculture means both fiber for textiles as well as edible goods. Um, While I was at Haas, I had the chance of working at Patagonia in their venture capital fund, Tin Shed Ventures. And that was my first foray into really understanding how do you invest in triple bottom line companies And to really put the other two levers off that bottom line, which are people and planet, on the same footing as profit. So that experience at Patagonia was very grounding in how to actually actualize that from an investment strategy. And then while I was also at Patagonia, I had the opportunity to work with them to help draft and author a standard for regenerative organic agriculture. And that was really my exposure to read all of the agricultural standards to understand what was incremental, what was greenwashing, and what was really North Star. And during that experience, I also had to look at things like the responsible wool standard and different standards for textiles. And that really served as a great foundation that I brought into this work at the Regional Fiber Manufacturing Initiative.
0: So when when we talk about wearing our values, as you put it so well, um, many folks in the fiber shed community have known for some time that developing businesses in the textile manufacturing and processing sector is really essential to supporting a fully functional regional economy that gets us dressed and you know provides us the textiles for our home this year with the ecosystem mapping phase of your work that you talked about a little bit um, through the RFMI, it seems like you went even further with that to really dial in on identifying the specific missing links and the strategic opportunities that exist. Nick, I'm wondering if we could bring you into the conversation and if you could walk us through a bit of your process with that ecosystem mapping. And specifically since supply chains can seem so opaque, I think we hear this a lot in the fiber shed community from folks kind of starting to explore domestically made goods. How did you go about piecing this puzzle together?
2: Great. Well, thanks for having me here. I'm excited to be sharing the work. And um, yeah, so the ecosystem mapping part was uh, really a major part of this work, and um, major focus for me this year, just understanding as a very baseline, what, what do we have? And a lot of that built on, on foundations that um, Fibershed has, has worked on already in the past. The National Mill Inventory that I, that I know you contributed a lot to was a really key resource and, and starting point. And we were expanding from that. And, um, and even just the framework of a soil to soil cycle is, is a really helpful map um, when thinking about this. And so what we did was, was really started at the soil and asked, you know, what, what does this region provide, Um, what types of fibers and what amounts, where are they made, where are they grown? And, and part of that is also defining the region. And that's sort of a, a back and forth process that, that can shift. But in general, we think about the Western United States, that's the region that we focused on for this. So that's Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and West to the coast. And We decided on that region because it seemed approachable, something that we could actually get a a reasonably detailed grip on. And it mapped pretty well to where a lot of wool is produced in the United States and where a lot of cotton is produced. So it seemed like a bioregion, fiber shed region um, that could supply for its own needs um, in in different ways. And so we, we set up that region and then we went Really from the supply side, and asked, you know, how much cotton do we grow? How much wool do we grow? And uh, a lot of that was using USDA data to understand um, at the county level, you know, where are the hotspots of wool production? There's a ton of wool produced in Montana, Wyoming, in that area, um, and really throughout the West. And we would learn things as we were doing this. We we actually mapped out the whole United States. And um, you can see these graphics um, on on our website, but we would see that there's a ton of wool produced in the West and in the Northern parts of the country. And at the same time, all of the scouring facilities, that first step in the processing um, are predominantly in the Southeast. And so most of our scouring capacity is actually in a state that produces hardly any wool. So what would it look like to expand the scouring in the areas where the wool is actually grown. Um, That's how understanding the supply of the fiber can really start guiding um, what kind of infrastructure and where it should be. And we had a similar process around cotton, um, seeing that uh, cotton is, is grown in the southern United States, but but also thinking about there are two main types of cotton grown in the United States. There's upland cotton, Um, which is the majority of the cotton and then extra long staple or Pima cotton. And uh, it turns out that most of the Pima cotton uh, grown in the United States is grown in California in the Southern um, San Joaquin Valley. And so understanding that we're growing 440 million pounds of cotton every year in the San Joaquin Valley was not something I realized and understanding that that's actually the main source of that cotton in the United States. Also allowed us to strategize and understand from a, a place-based perspective where these things might head, and I guess the next piece is is just understanding what are all the steps to making these fibers, and and some of that was was relatively new to us because you know I didn't have a lot of experience in traditional linen production, for example. So, interviewing. Um, groups like Fiber Evolution in Oregon who are looking to start a a flax processing mill and reinvigorate that industry. Just understanding what are the steps. So you harvest it, you break and scutch it. There's all these great words. You break, scutch, hackle, um, and mapping out those steps and then figuring out what do we have and what don't we have in this region. And that ended up being a lot of interviews with key stakeholders, drawing on Fibershed's resources and the National Mill Inventory, looking through um, industry directories and really going one by one and, and looking at the websites or calling the mills and just understanding what do you do and, and, and what don't you do. And that really gave us a clear picture of um, for cotton, for bast fibers like hemp and linen, for wool, for natural dyes and for uh, tanning. You know, what do we have and and what don't we have here?
0: Yeah, so exhaustive to do that kind of um, detail oriented work to really connect with all those different mills and figure out what people do um, and learn all of those fun <laughs> jargon terms. Um, I'm wondering, after you did all this and you got this clear picture, what you found and if you could describe some of the capabilities that we do see in the Western, District the sort of regional manufacturing initiative uh, geography um, what you found and what some of the gaps are and I know you looked at this across different fiber types if you could walk us through um, what specific materials you were looking at
2: right so some of maybe I'll paint a few just so sort of the broad picture things first and that's that's that we saw that yes we do grow a lot of wool in the Western U.S. Um, I actually don't have that number handy, but I'll I'll just say we grow uh, the majority of the United States wool in the West. We also grow a lot of cotton in the San Joaquin Valley of California. And so that was just a really great starting point to understand what we can do. And um, hemp and flax as bast fibers are um, really developing and there's a lot of potential there. So in a broad scale, we understood we have the material supply And at the manufacturing side, um, we saw that we do have some capabilities, but but certainly a lot are lacking. And so we focused on um, a few fibers and and areas. We looked at wool, cotton, bass fibers, like flax and hemp, natural dyes, and leather. And for each step of those processes, we looked at what we had. I think for wool, wool is really the most complete supply chain that we have in our area. We have a lot of wool that we produce. We have to send it elsewhere for the washing and spinning steps, but we have knitting. Uh, There's a lot of knitting in LA. We have weaving, Um, great projects like the climate beneficial wool um, that's been woven at Houston Textile near Sacramento. we have some dyeing and we have finishing. So there there are just a few gaps that we need to fill there. And um, not only did we map, you know, do we have it or not? We tried to think about what scale it currently exists. And so we do have artisanal scale cleaning um, and spinning and dyeing in our area And, and mills like Valley Oak Wool Mill and Mendocino Wool and Fiber Co are doing that work. And so if we can uplift those artisanal level processes then we can suddenly fill at an industrial scale the entire supply chain for wool and really provide a, a throughway for the regeneratively grazed practices that Fibershed is supporting on the agriculture side all the way towards a um, climate beneficial garment on the other end. For cotton we have we grow a lot of cotton um, and we gin a lot of cotton So remove the seeds and process that fiber. We don't have um, spinning currently and and a lot of the cotton grown here will get sent overseas or get spun in the Southeastern US. We do have a lot of knitting um, in LA again. About 60% of the manufacturers in the Western US that we mapped are from LA and that's for all the manufacturing and also the cut and sew. So there's a lot of knitters, there's a lot of dyers, a lot of finishers in LA. That's really a, the heart of the, the textile industry right now in, in the Western US. So for cotton, again, we have the knitting, um, we have relatively small scale weaving and dyeing. Um, we do have finishing. So. There's a larger gap for cotton. We'll need to fill the spinning component and that's currently done in the Eastern US but there's also a clear through way for that as well. I think the the least developed industry in the West but one of the most exciting is, is for bass fibers and we focus particularly on flax this year which is um, a, a really great fiber for high-end textiles. And really that entire supply chain is 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 at the artisanal level or or non-existent at this point in the United States. Uh, The flax industry did exist um, quite strongly in the Willamette Valley of Oregon up until about the 1960s and um, supplied a lot of fiber through the world wars. But that industry has, has since left and almost all the linen produced in the world is coming out of Europe right now. So, This is really growing from from the ground up and there's groups like Fiber Evolution who want to do those first components of the process to, to grow, harvest, scutch and hackle. So getting that fiber to a point where it's ready to be spun. We have exciting opportunities there. We need to spin that fiber. We don't have the long line spinning process in the United States, which is a very particular spinning process to bass fibers. You couldn't just put these long you know, meter-long fibers into a cotton system or a wool system, which we do have, um, needs to be very particular spinning process, and um, and then the weaving and the knitting and the dyeing and finishing facilities that we we hope to uplift for the other fibers because it also intersects there. So that was a little bit rambling, but there's just a ton of information, and um, we do have a lot of graphs and charts and images where we really sum this up on the website that you can check out for more details.
0: Thanks, Nick. Yeah, thanks for walking us through that. There are so many different details, and I think it's almost a wormhole for those who aren't in this sector or uh, maybe have experience in textile processing to understand some of the differences here between, you know, why you can't spin flax on the same equipment that you can spin cotton. Um, And I wanted to real quick just go into talking about scale for a minute if you're open to it mm-hmm. um, because i know from doing that national mill inventory project working on some of that research um, that i found it really challenging to try to categorize scale of milling in the u.s um, because it can range so widely especially i was looking more at wool mills with the national mill inventory so you use the term artisanal and uh, i know that industrial was kind of the other term you used how did you come to those? Like, are what metrics are you looking at, and um, and could you describe like what those feel like, or or what it might look like if you were standing inside an artisanal mill versus an industrial scale?
2: Sure, sure. Yeah, the the artisanal and, and industrial breakdown is, you know, it's a little bit flexible, but we we kind of think about artisanal if you're on the scale of tens of thousands of pounds per year compared to industrial, which might be millions of pounds a year of, of fiber process, something like that. And it's a little fuzzy, but it, there's sort of a clear demarcation. And people talk about this in the agriculture space. There's this idea of ag in the middle as this, this missing piece where you can, you can have really small-scale farming, and then you can have like huge industrial-scale far, scale farming. And the equipment and the, and the sort of infrastructure for that middle ag in the middle is just kind of missing. Um, they don't have, you know, middle-sized um, no-till drills or, 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 or something like that. But, but focusing on, on the manufacturing side, it's a really similar story with textiles and fibers, where there are a lot of kind of cottage-scale industry equipment, where let's say you have a, a wool spinning frame, and there might be um, 12 or 18 spindles going at a time to spin that yarn. The next step up is to get uh, a machine with like 240 spindles. And you would have that in like a very large factory and to make it economically viable, you probably have like multiples of those running in rows. And it's, it's partly about the economics. It's um, partly about just the, the sort of specialized global large scale direction that that global textiles have gone it's, it's really hard to find this sort of middle ground um, between artisanal and industrial. And that's, I think where a lot of the sweet spots lie where you can get some efficiency by having a large scale but you can still keep it connected to place and, and sort of human scaled with, with these middle, this middle ground. And so, yeah, artisanal might look like as small scale as, as hand processing and spinning. You know, hundreds or thousands of pounds of, of wool yarn in a year. Industrial might look like Pendleton Mills, who's, who's doing millions of pounds of wool and making blankets, for example.
0: Beautiful, thanks. And going back to Adrian, I know that uh, we, you know, we just heard from Nick about uh, all these different capabilities and then some of these missing links and ways we can adjust the scale of processing in the Western US. So on the one hand, it seems like there are a lot of needs when we list it all out. And on the other, I know that you and the RFMI team have been able to look strategically at what's needed. Are you able to share any insights about how the RFMI steering committee went about prioritizing those opportunities?
1: Absolutely. And I have to say, it's been an absolute pleasure working with both Nicholas and Rebecca. The the wealth of knowledge that Rebecca has about the community and the the level of deep care and respect she has for every member of it, coupled with Nick's engineering prowess and ability, we've really brought together a potent team that can think about the ecosystem from a very holistic perspective. And FJ and I bring more of the business acumen to the table, but to, to do this prioritization mapping, it really took all of us to come together And I think that, you know, given that we are in the Bay Area, in the West, there's this notion of that derives from Silicon Valley of move fast and break things. And, you know, as someone who went to business school here in the Bay Area, I really had to grapple with, does that really make sense for a regenerative textiles industry? And, you know, what what I came to understand is that it doesn't. It really doesn't, you know. if, if you wanna move fast and break things in the textile industry, you are not gonna be able to work with all the amazing artisans that are already in the space and that you might build something that you realize you're on an island and you have no one to drive inputs from and you have no one to share your products with on the other end. So from, from our perspective, We really wanted to move slowly and intentionally and have respect for the ecosystem that we were trying to uplift and continue to support. Over our nine month exploration, we ended up cataloging over 50 opportunities that had the ability to round out our domestic and Western textile production systems. And when thinking through, how do we take all 50 of these and to figure out next year who we are going to dedicate very specific tailored bespoke partnerships with Um, it just wouldn't be realistic to do it with all 50 and we were looking at a number closer to two to four so we had a lot of discussions on making sure that there is a objective process that we could go through to make sure that we were doing this in the most respectful way to the community when thinking about what we looked at We spent a lot of our time looking at wool, cotton, and bath supply chains. We also touched on hides as well as natural dyes. And then from that, we captured 50 potential opportunities. And then we came up with a rubric on how to distill those down to the two to four that we were looking to support with very bespoke services. One of the main criteria we looked at was if we were to support this business, how would that benefit the ecosystem at large? Given that there's a lot of work to be done, we really want to make sure that the businesses that we're supporting can be catalytic and helpful to people before and after them on the supply ecosystem. So one of the main driving forces was how does this business, if it was to grow or if it was to be started, does that support the overall system? The second criteria was how viable of a business is it? So this took a lot of time for me and FJ to sit down and to think about when would this business break even? When could it be profitable? How much capital would be needed upfront? How much working capital would be needed to, to launch the business and to think about what level of business viability this business would have. And given that this is our first cohort of businesses we're supporting, we want to make sure that we're supporting people that we can be confident, have the ability to be successful. The third one is entrepreneur fit. And every good business has a good entrepreneur behind it. And while you might have the, the right space, you might have the right type of business. But if you don't have the right entrepreneur, you're going to face a lot of headwinds. So when we looked at entrepreneurs, we really wanted to understand their leadership style. Were they able to build a brand, to build a team, and to build a nurturing environment that would attract other fiber leaders too? We also really dug into what was their understanding of the impact of textiles on the environment, As you look at many of the stats being projected right now, textiles are one of the leading contributors to greenhouse gas emissions, as well as as environmental degradation, as well as human labor violations. So we wanted to make sure that we were teaming up with entrepreneurs who weren't just interested in making a profit, but to do so in a way that respected the environment and respected the people who are part of that system. We also wanted to make sure that we were finding the best entrepreneurs from all types of communities. The West Coast is a very diverse area, but if you look at many textile industries, they lack levels of diversity as well as socioeconomic diversity. So one thing that we were attuned to was how can we use our resources to make sure we're supporting all communities that are interested in regenerative textiles And not just the typical communities that we see in this space. And then lastly, we wanted to find entrepreneurs who were interested in working with other people. And as advisors who have worked with many businesses, you really want leaders who understand what they're good at, but more importantly, where they can leverage others for support. And it, it was really important to us that whoever we were working with was able to take Nicholas's engineering expertise to really hone it and to really bring it in and to make sure it was being used in its best way. And we also wanted to make sure that when we worked with them, that they were taking our advice and were open to an evolving process where we could build and co-create something together.
0: Yeah, and in terms of co-creation and that sense of working together, I know that Nick, in addition to identifying some of the manufacturing capacity that's needed, you also explored different business models and structures that would be beneficial for creating a regional and um, really community supporting textile economy. Could you describe how cooperatives might show up in this manufacturing system?
2: Yeah, and and I've really enjoyed um, thinking in in systems, how all these processes can fit together I really appreciate how holistic Fibershed's approach is, um, thinking about the soil to soil cycle and and we're thinking about people as well as planet in that cycle. And and so in the Western United States in particular, when we mapped out all the manufacturers, it's clear that we're not starting from a blank slate in, in any way. There are plenty of, of people doing really great work right now, um, but especially compared to you know, the fully functional system or, or even the, the Southeastern US where there, there are a lot more manufacturers. We have really a lot of opportunity just to start start some things off in a, in a good way. And so from that foundational level, we wanted to look at both serving the, you know, the fiber needs, um, providing opportunity for regenerative um, fibers to, to get processed, but also how can we do that in a way that really supports uh, the people in those places? And textiles throughout the world and, and in the U.S. especially have, have quite a fra- fraught history and present um, in that regard from you know, low wage exploitative labor that's happening now um, in the clothes that we wear and to you know foundations of U.S. wealth being built on uh, stolen land and the labor of enslaved people, we, we see an opportunity here to craft the uh, manufacturing facilities themselves in a way that can at least address some that history and, and, and build towards wealth in communities and ownership of, of the, those production systems. And one thing we we came across as far as the business structures is is the potential for cooperative ownership and cooperative governance to um, create a, a strong foundation for for moving forward with with textiles in our region and it really does take it's, it's worth investing in, in these cooperative systems from the get go if possible transitioning is, is definitely possible later down the line. But if if we have this opportunity like we do to insert some good practices at the foundation, we'd love to do that wherever we can. And so that looks like um, where possible incorporating businesses as cooperatives so that the employees of those uh, factories themselves have ownership and equity in that manufacturing system. And that helps keep the wealth that's created by that in the um in the community and also allowing for the decisions that are made to be made by the people that are most directly affected those 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 workers and so collective ownership and uh, collective governance are are really strong parts of what we would um, love to insert into the really foundations of what we're creating here and we found some great support of folks like uh, the Democracy at Work Institute, um, who are helping us envision how how we can do that. And we we see great examples with groups like the Carolina Textile District, who it's a member governed organization in uh, the Carolinas of textile manufacturers from cut and sew operators to um, screen printers who are working together to um, meet the needs of, of their region in the southeastern US and to do so in a way that that keeps that wealth that's generated within the region. And and I think networks of these sort of self-reliant cooperating industries, these hubs, these fiber sheds or or or, or textile districts is, is really part of the vision that we'd love to see. And and these cooperatives can can all cooperate and, and help each other, but really be able to focus in and create these resilient distributed systems.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, such a wonderful vision. And speaking of the Carolina Textile District, they were part of our recent Fibershed Symposium, the 2020 symposium, which was our first ever virtual symposium. And, you know, a silver lining to that um, lack of ability to gather in person <laughs> meant that we had the opportunity to host panel discussions with a much wider geographic range and Adrian, you moderated a panel about uh, regionally grown, regionally made and regionally worn fashion. And I was wondering if you could share some of the takeaways from that gathering.
1: I would love to. And while I love all of Fibershed's in-person convenings because I've never felt a, a more palpable sense of community. I, I do agree that this virtual format really enabled us to bring voices from further away and also to really co-design questions in real time. And I I was really impressed by the level of engagement by all the viewers on helping drive the arc off that conversation I helped moderate. When we were thinking about the, the panel, we really wanted to make sure we had voices from across the supply, chain slash ecosystem. So we had people who are closer to production um, on the farm, and we had people all the way to designers who were were dealing with customers, and then people who are focused on taking textile waste and recycling it back to the start of the supply ecosystem. And I think that was one of the biggest takeaways, which is Many people look at supply chains as a linear function where you start on a farm or at the start of production, and then it ends when a consumer buys something. But as we know, textiles are increasingly becoming part of our waste stream. The era of fast fashion has created so much waste that literally every couple seconds, a entire garbage truck of textile waste is incinerated. So to us, changing this notion of a linear supply chain to a circular one is a step in the right direction. And what I mean by that is how can we make sure that we're producing textiles in an intentional way where once they've been worn by consumers, maybe upcycled into other potential designs or shared to other people, that we can then take those textiles and instead of putting them into landfills or to burning them, we could actually recycle them and to have them reenter as a recycled form of textiles. So that was a really interesting conversation that we were able to have with both the Carolina textile districts as well as the industrial commons. So we were happy to have both John Long and Catherine Irvin from the Caroline Textile District and the Industrial Commons. And one of their new projects is really focused on that recycling part of the equation. Another element that, that we learned about was how do you form and forge relationships with growers who are making textiles that really had the values um, alignment? And you know, for those in the fiber shed community. Everyone knows about climate beneficial wool. But for those of you who don't, climate beneficial wool is wool grown by ranchers who have gone through a carbon farm plan. And they ranch in a way where the wool produced on that ranch sequesters carbon opposed to being an emitter of carbon. And what we wanna see more off by uh, more use off by designers are people using inputs that they know were made in a way that were as close to being net zero or actually sequesters carbon opposed to releasing carbon. And that's why I really enjoyed my conversation with Italia A Collection. And you know what they were doing is that they were using climate beneficial wool exclusively on the line of their products that was sourced by Lani Estelle. And you know, through that conversation, there were nuggets about how her design process was created. So the way that she produces pieces, the, it produces virtually zero to as little as possible, scrap as possible. And then as we moved up the supply ecosystem, we also talked to the Garment Worker Center. And you know, when we think about regenerative, and you know, regenerative has become a buzzword a lot of people are just focused on soil health and typically a myopic focus just on carbon sequestration. And, you know, one thing that we believe at the RFMI is that regenerative is not just about soil. It's about the soil, it's about the the humans who are part of the supply ecosystem, as well as the environment. So What I appreciate about the Garment Worker Center is that they are making the case that garment workers need to be paid a living wage and that they need to be employed by entities that value the fact that every employee has a right to a livable wage and safe working conditions. And unfortunately, if you look around the landscape of many major brands, many brands aren't sourcing their products in a regenerative manner When it comes to a livable wage across the different participants of their supply chains. So spending time with Marissa on worker welfare and understanding what the Garment Workers Center is doing to help push that conversation from the periphery to the foreground, especially off this regenerative conversation, I see as one of the most important parts of um, what needs to happen to see regenerative textiles. And the last thing I would say is um, through our conversations with Taylor J off the Taylor J collection is that not every customer fully understands the impact that fashion has on the environment as well as their own health. And that through her relationships and through her company that she's actually had to take a much more edifying position than she would have expected. And, you know, she has had to, help people understand that different types of dyes and different types of processing do have high levels of toxins in those textiles. She's also had to communicate to her consumers that different types of materials have different environmental footprints and that on one hand, it might be better for you since you will be exposed to less toxins, but it'll also be better for the planet as well as the communities that are involved with it. So, those are some of the themes that were emergent during the regionally grown, regionally made, regionally worn panel. And I left it very motivated that this notion of a a regenerative textile economy is on, on the horizon, and that the different dimensions of the regenerative textile supply chain are working in unison and having cross-collaborative conversations on how they can support each other to get to that vision we all hope to see in the next couple of years.
0: Yeah, thank you. In terms of those sort of different voices and perspectives on along the value chain, uh, I know that the RFMI will continue to bring together many voices through a really unique, I think unique uh, structure, which is having committees. And Nick, I was wondering if you could share with us uh, sort of a big picture sense of the committees and how that engagement supports the regional fiber manufacturing initiative.
2: Sure. It's it's really about bringing in expertise from really the whole system. And when we're talking about recreating these soil-to-soil cycles for multiple fibers, it's, it's truly a Herculean task. Like we're, this is a very ambitious project, but we are not the ones um, doing it alone. And and our goal with the regional fiber manufacturing initiative is really to help catalyze that. And part of that is just bringing all of the people who have that expertise to the table. And Fibershed, for example, I know that all the staff members have a lot of embodied experience with the the textiles, um, growing them, knitting, making, and then also it's the community of producers that really ground that and, and provide foundation for the great work that Fibershed does. And in the same way with the RFMI, we're, uh, we need the expertise of um, people who have been operating wool mills on the landscape for years, uh, people from other countries who have a lot of really critical experience for us to bring here. So wool producers and wool processors in New Zealand, uh, linen producers in, in England. I think a it's it's all about collaborating uh, between our different communities. And part of that is is about sharing information between these different regions. We don't need to share materials back and forth. We can have our place-based systems, but let's share information back and forth together so that we can create um, these systems all over the place.
0: Yeah, I think that's such a powerful vision. To have that sort of cross collaboration, you know, no fiber shed is an island, um, but there is a level of that, like you've been talking about, sort of the place-based ability to actually uptake the materials that we grow. And so, with all of this, with the, from the ecosystem mapping to the prioritization, we've got a needs assessment and a community of stakeholders and expert input. Uh, and then, you know, as you guys have been talking about, we have these amazing technical advisors and developers. Adrian, could you speak to what implementation would look like and and could we could this really happen all at once?
1: <laughs> Jess, I love the question and I love the enthusiasm behind it. As a team, we believe that we now have the understanding of the ecosystem, a understanding of the opportunities that can help get the ecosystem to where it needs to be to be a viable parallel to the extractive um, textile system that we are all currently part of. And while I wish this could happen all at once, we see this as a practice that needs to happen year after year and not so much as a light switch that once turned on will stay on. And what, what, what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a model for textile production that is resilient in in the face of macro shocks, and whether that those are climactic-based or um, virus-based like COVID, we wanna make sure that the system we're putting forth is resilient in the faces of those shocks that we are seeing growing at an increasing rate. We also wanna make sure that as the future of work changes, that this system can evolve to that to make sure that the people who are part of this system can continue to have livable wages and a strong footing in this industry, no matter what the future of work tends to look at. And then we also wanna make sure that we are starting small, building a good foundation and to growing that foundation year after year in a organic growth process opposed to pushing for exponential growth for the sake of exponential growth. So, you know, while I would say it would be wonderful if I could flip a light switch and have everything change at once, by doing something in that manner, you are creating a system that's fraught for displacement that could actually hinder many people who already are working in the system. So what I like about our slow, consistent, and intentional process is that we are consistently working with the ecosystem to make it better, but we are always listening to the ecosystem and evolving what the roadmap is to best address the challenges that are emergent as well as the opportunities that are emergent. So, you know, what I'm most excited about is that we've created an infrastructure that is evolutionary in nature, and that will continue to evolve and support the ecosystem as the ecosystem constantly shifts. So I I hope that makes sense. And to me, there's something more natural about that system. And given that we're trying to create a soil-to-soil textile production system, to me, the fact that we are using more often evolutionary process um, than a linear and mechanical process, I think bodes well to the paradigm we're trying to move into.
2: Yeah, and I would just add it, it really is such an emergent process and that the, the key first step in that and continued step throughout that is uh, observation, just like paying attention to what's going on in the system, where the needs are, and helping grow it up from the ground, from the grassroots rather than trying to create some standalone structure in the sky, it needs to start um, from down below. And it's it's more complicated. It's, it's more uncertain, but I, I think that's the most resilient strategy.
0: In terms of that sort of slow and emergent process, do you think it's sort of a replicable process and strategy for other geographic regions? And what would you want those other regions and other communities who might be listening to this to know in, about starting to scope out their own regional fiber manufacturing ecosystem?
2: Definitely, I think it's it's totally applicable and um, adaptable to other regions, the, the process we've been using here and that's been part of our intent. We'd love to create a version of this here that can be, the impact can be scaled by replicating elsewhere and really that that ties into how can we all cooperate together in our different regions, not necessarily by shipping materials back and forth, but by sharing information. And so in in that line, I I would really invite um, anyone to use and adapt the frameworks that we've been using for our ecosystem mapping. Uh, For example, you can see a chart on, on the website that maps out all the different steps for the fiber production of the different fibers. And can you use that as a guide to say, which of these do we have and don't we have at what scales in in the region where you live? And I think really it would just, it just starts with that baseline observation of of what do we have. So mapping out the ecosystem, mapping out the supply of various fibers, USDA has a lot of great data about that mapping out the manufacturers, their useful industry directories with that information, interviewing your direct community, and all of that coming together to help define that region and starting from an understanding of, of what are the needs.
1: I do think that the work that we've done at the Regional Fiber Manufacturing Initiative and the process that we went through is one that is replicable and one that I would recommend for other locations to go through when thinking about how do they do similar types of work. One learning that we had throughout the way is that different fiber types and different processes like tanning as well as dyes, they have different length scales on what is a good fiber shed for that part of the equation. So when we were looking at dyes, right now, that makes sense more at a national level. When we were thinking about wool, that is one that we felt confident that can exist on a, a regional level. So, you, you know, one thing I, I would say is, as you understand your fiber shed and what is feasible, come up with a stepping stone pathway to get it to be regional at some point, but for some processes that might take decades, while others it might take months or years. So I I think um, the goal is to have regionalized processes to ensure that we're not shipping things across the world to be produced and creating a lot of greenhouse gas emissions in that process, Um, but at the same time, we need to understand what are the stepping stones to get to that regional system that we see as a North Star. So, um, you know, I think that's one piece of advice I would give to other locations that are thinking about doing similar types of work, work, which is think about what you're looking at and the different pieces of it might have different length scales on how regional it can be at this point and how you can set specific stepping stones to get it to be much more regionally focused. In in terms of thinking about ways to build resilient regenerative textile businesses, I I would really recommend looking at the work that institutions like RSF Finance um, does. Uh, They have this amazing program called the Integrated Capital Fellows Program. And the people who've gone through that program are doing some of the most groundbreaking work in developing regenerative finance. And you know, as, as a firm, our firm, Providence Capital Group, our goal is to be the financial infrastructure and backbone of a regenerative economy. And, and that's just, frankly, a really new concept. And there are many practitioners out there who are really helping us define what that term means. And to me, if you want to see a really good microcosm of that community, RSF's Integrated Capital Fellows community is one of the best, both on the people who teach that program, design the program, and have gone through the program. So, um, you know, one thing I would say is that not all business technical assistance is created equal and that you really want to make sure that whoever you're utilizing for a business TA shares the same values as you do, and to really find a way to verbalize that to make sure you're also speaking the same language on what those values are. So, you know, I would say that most business TA is couched in the current paradigm of extract and uh, deplete. And we are trying to figure out how do we build businesses that regenerate and sustain and the ways you do and run a business and those two paradigms are at odds with each with each other. So just make sure that if you are interested in regenerating and sustaining, that you find ecosystem partners on the engineering side, on the business side that share and are aligned with your values and make sure you codify your values and you really stress test that you're speaking the same language.
2: I would add, um, I think really cultivating relationships with uh, groups in other regions, even internationally is is really critical and bringing expertise from those regions who have continued the traditions of these textile manufacturing. So not so long ago, every region had that expertise but uh, it's been concentrated in only particular areas. And so cultivating collaborations with the Southeastern US around cotton spinning, for example, or um, with with Europe for, for linen processing. I think that's it's totally critical to bring in that expertise and welcome in that expertise um, so that we don't all have to recreate the wheel um, on our own.
0: Yeah, there is so much expertise in these systems. It's really amazing. I know every time I've visited a mill, um, I've learned so much, not only about the nuts and bolts of making textiles, but even just Kind of cultivating this sense of awe at the processes. It's uh, really kind of miraculous, I think, to watch fiber go through these phases. And it creates a lot of reverence for me for all the work that goes into making fabrics or yarns or any kind of fiber product. And I'm wondering uh, for our last question to wrap it up if there's any moment from uh, maybe this year or this um, initiative that sticks out to you, uh, something that you learned or that sort of blew your mind a little bit about textiles and this expertise.
2: Yeah, I think throughout the the mapping process, I was really struck by the potential of the fibers we already have growing on the landscape. And so in the uh, case of cotton, for example, the United States grows about 8.8 billion pounds of cotton lint every year. And that's enough to give 27 pounds to every citizen of the United States each year. And that's about, that would convert into about 54 t-shirts per person per year. So I don't know how many t-shirts you wear, but that would be more than enough for me. And even on the global scale, if you took that cotton and just from the United States, you could make more than two t-shirts for every human on earth um, every year from the cotton that's grown in the United States. Uh, zooming in on California, 440 40 million pounds every year. That's 11 pounds for every California resident. So every year. So we're producing a ton of cotton and we just um, have this great potential to, to use it. And, and there are definitely questions about how do we do this uh, sustain or sustainably? How do we do this regeneratively? And those are ongoing, really important questions. And Fibershed is doing great work with that in California right now looking at multi-species cover cropping, compost application, uh, alley cropping between perennial um, fruit or nut trees, for example. So there are definitely necessary um, advancements to be made so that we're having positive impact with these fibers, but the raw supply even right now is, is really impressive. And on the wool side, it's a similar story. We produce less wool than cotton, um, about 24 million pounds uh, every year in the United States compared to 8.8 billion for cotton. But the, the really exciting thing for me with wool is the impact it can have on the land. And so looking back at Fibershed's feasibility study for the wool mill back in 2014, part of that was a life cycle analysis thinking about what could the um, ultimate carbon sequestration potential of regeneratively grown wool be. And the land practices alone could sequester up to hundreds of pounds of carbon, of CO2 every year per pound of wool produced. And there's a big range there, but in an optimistic perspective, we're talking about hundreds of pounds of carbon sequestered for every pound of wool produce and that's because the sheep are on such a large landscape and, and for every pound of wool, you're able to affect a really large area of rangeland. And if you're managing that rangeland with compost application and managed grazing, the sheep are this incredible tool for managing the land, sequestering carbon, and the fact that we could produce, you know, sweaters for for everyone in the US is, is sort of the, um, the byproduct or, or the, the extra that you get out of it. Um, so I, I'm just excited by the potential both in meeting our material needs and in um, having a, a really positive impact on on the land and on people.
1: That was so good, Nick.
2: <laughs> Thanks. And in case it's useful, I, I'll just add the number that I got, which was the peak of wool production was in 1981. And it's, it's about a quarter of that now. But back then we were producing 110 million pounds of wool every year in the United States. And that would be enough to make a sweater for every person in the US every six years or so. And so it's, it's um, you know not as much as 54 t-shirts a year for cotton, but that's a lot of wool every year, and it's having this great impact on the land, if it's done well.
1: So I think it's hard for me to just distill a moment that that stuck out to me um, this year as we really launched the regional fiber manufacturing initiative. And to me, the entire experience really stuck out. And it, it really draws me back to a movie that I watched a lot in my childhood, The Matrix. And, you know, there's that scene where Neo is being told by Morpheus, you can either have the red pill or the blue pill, but you know, if he has the pill that shows him how the world actually is, he'll never be able to forget it. And I think much of my time at the RFMI has really been understanding how devastating our current textile system is, how much it's needed for it to change, but how we really need more people to understand and to go down the path where they learn what's wrong with it and are interested and motivated to being uh, you know, active participants of shifting what that landscape looks like. And you know, one, one important thing that happened to me this year is that I became a father and thinking about my own daughter and the world that you, you know, I hope to leave behind for her and future generations to, to enjoy I think the work that we're doing is centrally important to addressing one of humanity's biggest needs which is how do we clothe ourselves but how do we do that in a manner that allows for a planet that will exist for generations to come and to me no matter where you live in the country there is work that each of us needs to do to approach this with much more intentionality and to be coherent with our values and i think the biggest surprise to me was how many people who believe that they are doing the right thing day in and day out and living their values, how far off those people are from being where they need to be on the textile front. And you, you know, part of my own work in my own life has been, how do I live my, my values and find a way to do that by having kindness and compassion uh, to myself and those in my life? but to me the most surprising thing is how many people in areas like the bay area are so far away from being where they need to be to be living their values especially on the textiles front
0: then tell you let me tell you let me tell you i love you then tell you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Soil to Soil, a podcast by Fibershed, which is a nonprofit organization based in Northern California, based on the traditional and ancestral territory of the Coast Miwok and Southern Pomo people. We invite you to learn more about our work and the concepts described here by visiting www.fibershed.org. There you can join our email newsletter to hear the latest updates or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Fibershed. You can learn more about the regional fiber manufacturing initiative on fibershed.org or head directly to the RFMI page by typing this short link into your browser. I'll spell it out for you. It's bit.ly backslash capital T lowercase H E capital letters RFMI. So that's bit.ly slash the RFMI. The articles we were discussing are available on our blog, which is fibershed.org slash blog. And we'll have links to all these different pages and resources in the show notes. It means so much to us that you're listening. We would love to hear what's resonating with you and what you think of the show. You can tag us on social media while you're listening or recommend to your friends. And you can also leave us a rating and review directly in your app. That really helps us reach more people. The show is produced by Fibershed with support from Whetstone Media and music by Aaron Harris, a member of the Northern California Fibershed Producer Network.